started contributing to the ESPN.com boxing page, started interviewing fighters when they'd come through and really was lucky to be the niche sport guy inside a giant company where, you know, fighters would regularly come through as guests and everyone there would be looking at each other and be like, anyone know who this guy is? Anybody want to interview him? Like, Sergey Lyakovich? Oh, get the boxing guy over there. He sits over there in the windowless room. Yeah, that's me. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tourist Information. Our guest this week is Brian Campbell. Brian Campbell has been a writer at ESPN. He's over at CBS. Um, he's covered boxing now for, I think, over 10 years. I bumped into him, I think it was in Atlantic City, covering uh, Sergey Kovalev. And I just remember looking next to me, and there was Campbell, who I'd seen on TV, um, with his silly sort of pointing, making his hand a gun and shooting you from the ESPN website videos. And I thought, is this guy, does he take himself seriously or does he have a good sense of humor? Because if, if it's the latter, I'm going to really like this guy. And then somebody from Kovalev's camp came over and said, just don't bring up that Sergey killed somebody and, and you'll, you'll do fine. <laughs> Brian and I looked at each other. So Brian has a great backstory. Um, yeah, his, his journey is, is something. Um, some of the struggles he had with his wife and, and uh, having two kids that were born prematurely. Uh, maybe, none, maybe some of you have never heard that story before, but that was the first story that I heard from him when I met him. And pretty hard not to fall in love with this guy for uh, who he is and, uh, and his enthusiasm and his appreciation for life. What he went through with those kids, him and his wife, was um, really, really tough. And, and it's brought a kind of gratitude about him toward other people that uh, made, made me really interested to talk to him, just to share a chat with, with him, with, with listeners. So I hope you enjoy Brian Campbell. this uh unique pandemic that we're all dealing with i i get asked that question often thank you sir uh <laughs> is uh wife kids and animals doing great it's like an extended vacation for them uh for me it's you know it's every every other week i will say i'm doing much better now as an experienced quarantiner a few months in on uh you know sealing off triggers for potential uh, mental uh, departures and finding even hobbies that are helping, like uh, chopping wood, splitting wood, like a damn fighter is there something you that you uh, mentally and physically. But no, I'm doing great. Obviously, uh, blessed to uh, to be healthy during this and to still be getting paid from my day job. So um, that has helped certainly get over some of the uh, mental hiccups of just the cabin fever. But I'm fired up for real fights. Got a little taste of it from the UFC folks the last few weeks and, uh, Things have been going good. What is it like not having had boxing for two months? I mean, is this, you're a bit of a boxing historian. Is this the longest stretch? I mean, what was going on during the 1918 flu? Was boxing still happening then? I mean, this just seems so eerie to not have sports, let alone the sport that we both cover pretty attentively. 
Yeah, it, it's been, it's just been every, I mean, every element of this, you know, uh, pandemic quarantine has been, you know, unprecedented is the, is the word I constantly use because of, especially considering how often sports, whether it be wartime, whether it be uh, economic recessions, sports was the thing that everybody clings to. I mean, I, you know, I remember working at ESPN for many years, feeling like it was recession proof, like our jobs were going to always be safe, which of course wasn't, you know, ultimately the truth for some, but, but uh, this time around, no box. No life, as Canelo would say. Well, we, we had to all figure out who we are at our core. And our... It's been wild, and I didn't expect it mostly because, look, boxing at its very, you know, entry-level core is in, incredibly unsafe. And that, you know, danger-slash-unpredictability is certainly part of what we love about it, part of what we cling to, because it's the, the rawest, realest form of, of life-turned-sport. But at the same time, I never expected that, that sport to be the one that just went went cold this whole time, went off, you know, uh, turned off the lights. So I expected boxing to be the, in the spot where Dana White in the UFC was, just fighting through any uh, common sense, any uh, safety protocols, any government, local government uh, sanctioning, and just getting it on. Um, it's been, you know, I, I guess, I don't know if pleasantly surprising is the right tone, but, you know, the, the powers that be in boxing have been sort of the adults in the room to a certain degree, you know, trying to make the right decisions. But the gap, though, has been really weird. You know, there's only so long you can watch old fights and uh, and write about old fights when you just want the real thing. Do you think boxing is just going to follow Dana White's lead with, seems like the UFC was pretty successful for the most part with being, the I guess, the first sport to sort of get out there during this and, and have athletes thrown into competition with no audience. Um, is boxing going to be able to follow that blueprint successfully, do you think? I think certainly on the highest levels they will, especially the promoters who uh, who depend the majority of their income on TV rights deals. It's going to be easier for them to have empty arena or soundstage fights or whatever. In terms of the safety protocols, I figured... Uh, and I think it's true that everyone's going to follow Dana White. Now, in terms of, you know, UFC just put on three fight cards in eight nights. It wasn't without, you know, hiccup. One fighter and his team, um, you know, tested positive. They did their best to sort of, uh, you know, put him in, in his own little island there to get away from everybody. They they made um, media and fighters sign a non-disparagement clause, which was certainly a bad public look. But for the most part, they pulled off what they intended to do I really believe boxing is going to be right behind them. And I think all these promoters were, were sort of just waiting for that opportunity. Okay, they did it. Let's see how we can replicate that. You know, whether it's Eddie Hearn in backyard fights at his mansion or, you know, Bob Arum trying to secure a uh, a Las Vegas gym uh, to, to be able to pull off an empty arena televised card. It works certainly at the highest level for a Bob Arum who is just looking to fill dates and get the show back on the road to get his meal ticket money from ESPN, it has to be harder to impossible for the lower and, and even mid-level promoters. So it'll be interesting to see in this, uh, in this sort of soft launch period, which is it's going to be really hard to gauge how long we can go doing empty arena fights in either combat sport and whether future uh, you know, dips in the pandemic numbers you know, uh, dictate even those to stop. You would hope not. You would hope every step we take forward is progress 
toward getting back to, you know, regular living, full-on arenas. Everybody who has a stake in this sport as fan or uh, journalist or, or fighter, you know, can, can financially get what they're accustomed to. But uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an interesting, you know, next year to figure that all out. I do think, though, that boxing is going to be back ASAP now that we've sort of seen a model. And it's just going to come down to more state commissions. Uh, following, you know, first Florida, Arizona, and now you're seeing uh, New York even dabble with the potential of opening the doors. One thing, I, I was listening to Eddie Hearn be interviewed on Chris Mannix's podcast, and he talked about it. this is a real opportunity for boxing to kind of reset and recalibrate in a sort of holistic model to try to improve some of the deficits that have been exposed in boxing, sort of not being like the other professional sports and having some difficulty producing the top fights that fans want to see, that fighters who've been paid a lot of money over the years as venture capital has fallen into boxing. Do you think, like, boxing does have an opportunity to sort of get out of its own way and sort of improve for the good of the sport rather than individuals trying to fight over power and territory within the sport? I mean, certainly there's the opportunity there. I mean, there's an opportunity for all of us at, uh, you know, how we lived our life before and now after, whether that means, you know, working more from home to get a better life balance or or what have you. But uh, will they is obviously the key question. I think, uh, you know, boxing is, is obviously for those of us that are on the inside, no, it's, it's much more healthy than it was and certainly than the generic public narrative tends to say. I mean, we have fight deals on national television and, and, you know, major streaming services. So it certainly ain't that bad at the moment, but this utopian idea of everyone working together again and everyone putting the future of the sport first, uh, you got to have, you got to be, have the right playground set up for everybody to want to play together. And what I sort of mean by that is, uh, you know, the problem, the, the main problem above, a wild west setting of individual, you know, greed and entrepreneurs looking to just stay afloat uh, at all costs is that we don't seem to have that HBO. And what I mean by that is that registered number one broadcasting entity that is there regardless of specific deals with promoters. You know, now networks are an extension of the promoter, unfortunately. And that certainly makes it hard because to make these great fights, for the most part, you have to do it on the pay-per-view level. Now, it was a Wilder Fury 2 with Fox and ESPN coming together a great step forward. Like, of course it was. You know, everyone got along. It was great. It wasn't the debacle of Mayweather-Pacquiao. Uh, but it's obviously, as you know, so rare to get or to consistently get fights uh, fight where at the, they're at the financial level where that would make sense. So do I think this pandemic... Uh, did anything to scare some folks and say, you know, we're, we're probably stronger together in the long run. I have my doubts because that's boxing. It's this, it's this stubborn thing that we love that, that as the great Larry Merchant always says, you know, you can't kill it and you can't save it and all that. And those both are true. But uh, under the way the playground is set up now, I, I still say no. You know, I, I hope, I hope, I hope this is this all was a trend in the right direction. Some of these recent collaborations between uh, networks and promoters, but uh, I don't see the the financial upside of it happening everywhere just yet. Well, couldn't we stage some of these fights without a, an audience? Like it seems like I've watched both documentaries on Fire Island. Seems like there's a lot of people there who could use the economic stimulus 
of boxing coming to Fire Island, or maybe we can rent out the Acropolis or some world wonder as the backdrop for some of these fights. Uh, yeah, sounds like a great idea. Uh, I mean, I, I hope it changes the the creativity. I mean, you know, Bob, Bob Aaron went to Yankee Stadium with Cotto, Yuri Foreman, and no one's ever sniffed the walls again. You know, it's the same. It, it may not be the same uh, Gary Shaw produced, um, you know, Native American casinos, but certainly we go in the direction of the least, you know, path of resistance of Vegas. Okay, Vegas, it is. You know, I, yeah, I'd like to see the idea of, of making boxing attractions again, whether it's using creative um, locations that don't necessarily depend completely on the live gate. Uh, and it, I mean, I say that yet, you know, how few fights have gone even to Jerry's world there at AT&T stadium, you know, that you'd think that would be a more popular destination for the type of fights that, you know, have the potential to sell it out yet. Mm. Those same fights end up in the same 16,000 seat Las Vegas casino arena. So uh, that sort of is what it is, but um, yeah, I hope hopefully the UFC Fight Island idea uh, only kicks people to realize like why can't we put a ring on a floating uh, naval battleship or something like why can't we do this? Why can't we put this on top of a building in in the Middle East? You know why can't we do something cool or creative? Um, those with the money will will always dictate that. So you know we always hear the. The presence of, of you know the, the Saudi Arabian billionaires who who want to do anything to throw money at people, and that certainly got uh, Anthony Joshua and uh, Andrew Ruiz there for the rematch. But uh, you know, if what if they come up with some cool idea? Yeah, it could happen. But it, you know, somebody's got to pay for it at the end of the day. It kind of end up being like Street Fighter Two with just exotic backdrops for every contest from around the world, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be great. That would absolutely be great for someone who is secure financially. And what I keep saying by that is someone who's not dependent upon the live gate to survive. So Bob Arum, if he just said, yeah, screw it. We're going to put a ring in Central Park. You know, we're going we're gonna to do a fight there or we're going to do whatever. You know, the middle of Times Square, we're going to, you know, something crazy. Yeah, please, let's, let's shake boxing up a little bit. I mean, if, if Jeff Bezos is going to be a trillionaire by 2026 and he's willing to lose money bankrolling the Washington Post, theoretically, can't we get him to sort of get all the top buildings in the world, like the tallest buildings in the world? I'd love to see a world heavyweight championship fight like 160 stories high <laughs> in various exotic locales. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, put it, you know, uh, put it on the beach in, uh, you know, Venice, California. You know, yeah, something, something cool and different if we're not necessarily... I mean, but that is that kind of the future direction of the sport being more dependent at the highest level on established TV deals. And that, you know, as we mm. saw with like PC, you know, when they used to paper the house in the beginning, because it really didn't matter. They were getting, you know, the, the, the network deal was there. I, I wish, yeah, I wish a lot of that. Okay. So you're, you're, the root of your question is essentially what can boxing do in this meantime while we're sitting on our thumbs to improve themselves? Uh, you know, outside of working together more, yeah, maybe it's it's, it's getting creative here. Uh, you know, we see that certainly in um, UK, which is thriving in terms of the, the vibrant entrances and the hey, we got this big fight, let's put it in this soccer stadium and let's charge a little bit less than they would in the U.S. Oh, by a little bit, I mean a ton less. By the way, okay, yeah, yeah. you know, Oscar De La Hoya on my podcast a couple weeks ago, and he's like, you know, maybe maybe we can't rely anymore on the overseas. I forgot how he said it. The overseas CEO of a random company paying 
five grand to sit ringside for a big fight. We can't depend on that anymore. We shouldn't be depending on that, okay? Great Mayweather Pacquiao never should have been at the damn MGM Grand Garden Arena, although I love that space and loved being, you know, blessed enough to be in the building that night. Um, these type of fights should be at the Louisiana Superdome where Ali and Spinks fought. These fights should be, you know, in those type of uh, uh, occasions that are either in uh, locations, excuse me, that are either completely unique or offer mass attendance and a real cultural event feel. Because um, when you're watching through your TV screen at a Wembley Stadium Anthony Joshua fight, you, you get a secondhand high off of that. You're like, you know, how do I even like smell that? How can I, you know, is, it, is that snortable? Yet, <laughs> even in the arena at a great big time Vegas fight, you're like, you feel like this could be bigger. This could be better. Right. Did you go to Saudi Arabia for the Ruiz Joshua fight? I did not. What do you think about boxing going there? Like, is there, what are the implications of just the high, highest dollar winning out? for a location when it's fraught with a lot of baggage where people question the morality of the sport. I mean, I don't find that a lot of people go back to like the rumble in the jungle and be like a dictator staged this for publicity. According <laughs> to Norman Mailer, he wiped out 10% of the prison population to send a message. Don't mess with all these foreigners covering this great event. Like it was just for publicity purposes. And a lot of people suffered for that to happen there's a lot of objections, human rights objections to Saudi Arabia, uh, how they treat journalists, how they treat women. Do you think it's okay for boxing just to allow the market to dictate where it goes? Or should there be other considerations? I mean, I'd love to be the, uh, you know, the privileged American fan and be like, you know, they should always consider us first. This sport should be done in some large American. <laughs> stadium in, in staged at 10 p.m. Eastern time, you know, rather than whatever. But uh, boxing's always been about, you know, there's, like I said, there's a reason it keeps going to Vegas to the same, uh, the same hotel owner. Why is that, do you think, right? It's like right. If we, the, the, you go, you got a piece of bread, you find the guy who makes the butter. That's how it works. Um, yeah. Initially, we did have some, I think, rightful negative reactions to Saudi Arabia. It started with WWE going there. Uh, in the past two years, and I think it was rightfully so at the time, uh, you know, especially for them going as a company that was trying to push this women's rights narrative and evolution and all that, and they're going to a country that, you know, women can't even show up in the arena, let alone, you know, compete on the card. And, right. you know, whether you believe any of their claims that them being there is helping slowly change and, and further things, or you just realize that they're there because the price is stupid high, um, what should stop boxing from going there? I thought Eddie Hearn handled the Anthony Joshua-Andy Ruiz rematch talk there when he was asked the same questions following what WWE was doing, where he was, like, honest. He's like, you know, they, they're the most money. Like, that's the end of the day. It is what it is. Um, I'm not against that. I'm really not because boxing's not not a shine. You know, that you can't put a, a, an evening gown and lipstick on this great pig that is boxing, right? We watch yeah. it because it's a violent representation of real life, and it uh, gives us a rush, and we gamble on it, and... We uh, admire the toughness of what these competitors bring out in ways that we could, you know, couldn't dream of, of reaching in our daily life, or we get inspiration from that, or whatever it is that sticks us to this, um, which is why, again, I'm surprised that boxing ever even took a break during this quarantine uh, from televising live <laughs> fights, because it's not, you know, it's never been a house of morality, right? You know, it's a sport yeah. that even when you when you cover it, you're 
you know, you have those moments every few years where you're like, do I really want my, you know, do I want my name attached to this? Do I want the grandkids one day to be like, you know, this is what grandpa did for a living. But with all that said, um, it's, it's a sport, I mean, it's a sport that can draw, that can grab the world's attention on any single night beyond the sports headlines to the crossover front page. And one man like a Floyd Mayweather type can make a hundred to 300 million for one night. It's already, you know, this, this ridiculous Wild West exhibition that, you know, plays on and preys on sort of uh, our natural cravings. If it comes down to a Saudi Arabian uh, sultan or, or, you know, whatever a, a, a non-insulting term is to describe somebody out there with a lot of money, um, why not? Why not? It's been done before. It'll be done again. Um, can you put it on in the, in the evening time that we're used to? Okay. If you can't, I'm still watching it, right? You know, we'll get, sure. guess what happens sometimes? We get like a Jeff Horn fight on a Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern in Australia, and we all go, oh, my God, can you believe this fight's going to be on at 7 a.m.? And then we watch it. We're like, man, that was great. Let's, we should do this again tomorrow. So, um, no, there's nothing – what's the sanctity in boxing? Nothing. So, yes, I don't care. Uh, Antarctica, there's a, there's, a, you know, there's a research station there where Caramel Vani can save whales during the day and then write me a recap for the fight at night. For, you know, yes, put the fights in Antarctica, whatever we got to do. <laughs> I like it. Well, when did you – I want to get it into sort of your story covering the sport. What year did you first begin covering boxing professionally? That's a good question. Um, I started at ESPN in 2005. It took me a bunch of years to kind of become the boxing guy of our operation there where I was working initially at ESPN Mobile. I think a lot of people remember the launch of the phone in 2006, the failed launch, but the failed launch of the phone – um, really taught them that mobile is the future in terms of, you know, we're all going to have smartphones. It's going to be going on ESPN.com every second. And I got some opportunities over the next few years through that to sort of be our boxing guy, cover some things. But it really wasn't about 2010 where um, I started contributing to the ESPN.com boxing page, started interviewing fighters when they'd come through and really was lucky to be the niche sport guy inside a giant company where, you know, fighters would regularly come through as guests and everyone there would be looking at each other and be like, anyone know who this guy is? Anybody want to interview him? Like, Sergey Lyakovich? I'll oh, get the boxing guy over there. He sits over there in the windowless room. Yeah, that's me. I'll, I'll interview him. Um, so right place, right time, got some good opportunities, was able to contribute for a, a handful of years there as a writer that led to an editing job in boxing and MMA that led to, um, a, you know, sort of like mini tryouts as a, as a uh, digital show host with ESPN's Making the Rounds, and you know, eventually that led to some TV with Friday Night Fights and all that. And uh, it it was, you know, if catcher's the shortest path to the majors in baseball is the old adage. Um, yeah, be, being the only guy that's there and hungry for this for this one niche sport certainly gives you opportunities. And I was able to learn everything on the job along the way. So uh, amazing story, hard to duplicate it. But uh, I wouldn't change it for a thing. Well, and, and just going back, like, where were you born? Where did you grow up? And give me the dime tour of, of there, but also the, the breadcrumb trail to get it. When boxing intersected with your life and this path forward to when it became a realistic possibility that you were going to be involved with it in, in your life, that this was going to be a career. Grew up in suburban uh, Naugatuck, Connecticut, nice factory town in uh, in the middle of uh, middle of a suburban 
slash urban uh, area environment outside of Waterbury, Connecticut. And, you know, boxing's hot in the early 80s when I'm super young. It coincides with the, with the with Rocky movies three and four hitting the theaters, you know, in what, 83, 85, which really commercialized the sport. It's also at a time, of course, where, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard, the, the end of the Muhammad Ali run. So it, the boxing's still boxing to a large degree at that point. The Rocky movies shaped me in huge ways to understand that the sport is, is uh, it, it, was, it was an easy way to access the sport and, and understand it and sort of want to follow it. But it wasn't until the, uh, the Sugar Ray Leonard Marvin Hagler 1987 pay per view fight that was the first where like I got a taste of the drug, meaning like people talking about this big fight with this crazy narrative of this guy coming back from retirement, even though it's dangerous to do so, and moving up in weight, and who's going to win? Oh, and we're going to have a party at, at Grandpa's house in the basement, and you know everyone talking about my dad, who's not even a sports fan, buying the pay per view and putting in the VHS tape so we were able to relive that fight, you know, many times years to come and debate the scoring and staying up late and watching that thing. Um, that was a huge sort of uh, imprint moment, you know, about that, you know, when it matters, boxing, there's nothing, there's nothing like the rush of boxing, you know, the Super Bowl, it doesn't get you this excited. Um, and, you know, I was a huge heavyweight fan in the early 90s. Um, when, when uh, I love saying this, it, it, it's, it's, People don't realize it. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up in the you know seventies when boxing was, was was everything, right? I didn't grow up in the fifties mm-hmm. when it was you know the number one sport. I think grew up in the early nineties when Holyfield, Bo, Tyson, Lewis, Foreman, etc. And after a big pay per view fight, which I would typically illegally watch by taping a nickel down on the power box of my cable box, Strong. and uh, that would do is take the blocked pay per view channel and make it a little bit accessible. You could hear the full audio, and you could see through the squiggly lines, and every seven or eight seconds, you'd just barely get a patch of clarity in terms of mm. like, oh, God, I saw it. You know, was that a boob? Was that an elbow? Was that George Furman's head? What was that? Uh, but you certainly could follow the fight. So I guess that's this modern-day equivalent of sitting by the giant radio when, like, Lewis' face is smelling, and, and, like, you know, the, the, the future of uh, world... Peace is at at stake, yet it's me doing that for, like, George Foreman against Evander Holyfield. And it not only was great, but then you turn on SportsCenter. And then it'd be 25 minutes to kick off the show live from Las Vegas, Charlie Steiner, Al Bernstein. And every time I talk to Al Bernstein today and I get to do some work with him at Showtime, which I'm very excited uh, about doing each time, I tell him, I'm like, Al, you, like, you were like the, you know, the – the pusher. You were like the you handed you you provided me with the drugs because we you you turn on Sports Center, which in 1991 was you know the biggest thing ever, and they'd go nearly a half hour live, and it made it feel like the biggest sport ever. And I stayed a fan through the 90s of major heavyweight fights of the 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 few smaller weight guys like a Roy Jones or a Nassim Hamed who would you know jump up to the heavyweight level uh, De La Hoya of uh, importance, and it really wasn't though. Um, and so the 90s are aided by my dad finally giving in and getting an illegal cable box. So now Good I'm watching him. anything I want to. Yeah. And, uh, and when when they retired and moved to Florida, he gave me the illegal cable box. And so I had been kind of cold as a boxing fan in like 01, 2, and 3. You know, I watched Tyson Lewis at a friend's house, of course. But I wasn't watching uh, Gotti Ward live. I wasn't watching, you know, any of the, the major things going on. But when they moved. 
in like 2004 and gave me the cable box. I'm like, oh, all right. So now I'm getting back into boxing a little bit. I specifically remember watching um, Casamayor Corrales 1 and being like, oh, I, I need to start watching this more often. And right around that time, I had a friend from who I grew up with who was like, hey, my parents uh, boarded up their outdoor porch. They let me use it as a boxing gym. And this is in the dead of winter. He's like, you know, you want to come over and train and spar with me? And three nights a week, for the first time, I just jumped into it. We'd put on the headgear, would warm up, and we'd spar for like two hours and go through the drills. And, you know, I'm some, you know, nerdy, not nerdy, but average Joe guy who doesn't get into fistfights in real life. Yet I'm trading punches and I'm dealing with being buzzed and I'm playing the human chess game. And I'm realizing that, like, this great sport, which played so well to me through the lens of a Rocky movie or a Mike Tyson's punch-out video game or a really, really big pay-per-view fight once a year, is actually insanely compelling no matter who's fighting if you just understand a little bit about what you're seeing. And it started like a, like a match going off and, you know, it, it, it started this wildfire of like, oh, my God, I've, I've decoded this. I've figured out what this actually is. This isn't, oh, these two tough guys are going to face off, and I can't wait to see which one can knock out the other. And in some way, it's an extension of being like in the schoolyard in middle school, and you, you see a fight's about to come from like a few minutes away, and this guy cheated on this guy's girl, or he talked bad about her, or he said something about this guy's mom, and you're like, they're going to throw down. Oh, my God, I can't wait to see what happens. It went beyond that to the, the science of it. And I couldn't believe that that term, the sweet science, was real. And mm. I wasn't... You know, I was just sparring with another man, you know, somebody that I, was better than me, but I trusted and allowed me to, to get better. And, and, uh, and this was the most manliest thing I'd ever done. The rush was incredible. And I thought about it every second of every day. When I went to an elevator, a guy was next to me for the first time. I could, like, size him up and think, okay, if this turned into a street fight, here's what I'd do. I'd, I'd roll my shoulder and I'd, you know, I'd this and that. And I, in the addiction level, went to where this was, you know, pre-YouTube, you find a dealer online who can get you um, DVDs of any fight, and you just start acquiring them. And I'm buying the complete fight collections of De La Hoya, Trinidad, Roy Jones, Bernard Hopkins, and I'm like, I got to fill in all the fights that I missed, not just the past three years, but really because I'm an um, insane um, completionist, right? If you introduce mm -hmm. me to this band, I really like well, I, I can't really give you an opinion on them until I've listened to every song they've ever produced, right? Like, you know, I'm one of those weirdos. So um, I spent hundreds of dollars in these random guys in California, these, you know, Mexican-American great gentlemen who were filling in the blanks and telling me why, you know, Shane Mosley could look so great against Oscar in 2000 at welterweight, but it just didn't translate when he moved up to 54 against Winky, and I just didn't understand that. And, um, you know, Morales Pacquiao one was a huge fight that I was back in as a fan and was like, Oh my God, I can't wait for this. And I got the black box on pay-per-view and I had a hunger for it at a level where in 2005 I was living in an apartment with two high school friends. I was working a day job in a factory going in at 6am as like the shipping and receiving manager. And I'm thinking about boxing all the time and I'm spending all of my Saturday nights as a single uh, male in my twenties watching fights at one point, a couple of my friends were like, dude, what are you doing? All you do is spend money on fights, and all you do is blow us off on Saturday nights and watch fights. Like, what are you building for? And I remember saying, like, I don't know, but it's, like, taking over me. It's taking over me the same way 
I guess like drugs had year a couple years earlier. Anybody that's that's gone on a uh, a wild expedition for a few years of their lives and joined the party circuit, um, there's decisions that get made in your life that you you don't make them. You're not you know you're you're in the car that is your life, but you're not driving it, right? Somebody else is right. making those decisions. You're kind of just watching it happen. You go, all right, I guess we're doing this. You know, it was kind of like that with boxing. I was like, I don't know what I'm building towards, and um, you know, I never would have guessed. In 2005, right? That later that year, I'd finally get into ESPN with some crappy part-time project position, and that um, you know I could become the oh that guy knows a lot about boxing and work another five six years before I ever got a chance to interview somebody. One day, Mickey Ward came in promoting the Fighter movie, and I got to sit down with him and and ask him stories about his ten greatest fights. And I wrote this huge four thousand word piece, and I'm like, you know, I can retire now. Like I made it. I, I have a byline on ESPN.com in this sport that I love and anything I've done since then in my career has, has each step of the way hasn't been this, this detailed grand plan where I'm like, okay, in three years I'll be at this level. Each step of the way has been like, I don't even know if I could do that. I don't even think they'd hire me to do that. But if I ever get a chance to do that, that'll be so much freaking fun. And I think that's kind of been like a, a secret skill for me to just kind of be oblivious to uh, the idea of a career arc or, you know, I, I, I don't give up. I keep working hard, all that. But I just enjoy, like, every step of this. And I'm still that guy who's uh, spending a hundred couple, at least a hundred a month buying old DVDs, even though now you don't have to do that, right? You can go on uh, YouTube or go on, you know, whatever archive to see it. But I still keep that, that spirit and passion because uh, these, these fights, this is the, the, the high doesn't go away. You know what I'm saying, and that's and that's why we are that's why we're fans of this ridiculous sport. When when you go to you know soccer games with your kids and they're like, "What do you do for a living?" And you know I got I go, "Okay, how am I going to frame this?" Well, you know I'm a journalist. No, I don't say I'm a journalist. I'm a damn boxing writer, or you know mixed martial arts, you know pro wrestling. Yeah, that's what I cover. And the, and you do get the side eye look of like, "Oh, really? I don't know if my kids should be playing with your kid. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? Is I'm addicted, Bryn? All right, because it's it's life. It's it's art." representing life and, it, and it's a dark art but damn do i love it well and i i wanted to get at something i think i first met you around 2013 there was an atlantic city main event with sergey kovalev and espn had invited both of us to like a special sort of exclusive interview with kovalev with me i think it was just us or maybe there's a couple other people but it was kind of a dinner and you and I started talking, and I, I'd been a fan of you. I remember watching you when you were on camera, and you would sort of point your finger at the camera. And I thought, if he's not doing this ironically, I don't know how I feel about this guy. If it is ironic, I really like this guy. This is very charming and funny. And we met, and we got along very quickly. But what I found out, as I was just kind of entering covering the game and, and kind of fell into it a little bit was that I was like, Brian works for ESPN. Brian is on TV all the time. Brian must be very wealthy and connected and everything's just going so well. So clearly his whole path must have been really easy to get here. And then very quickly I learned about your backstory that you were, you know, you were not making a fortune covering boxing at that time. And you have this incredible backstory with your wife and kids where I was like, my God, like how many other writers are in this industry 
who have these backstories, but you only know them on the page until you meet them and talk to them and find out who they really are. And I just wondered, like, if we could talk a bit about that, because it really changed my perception, not just about you to learn about where you came from and what you'd undergone with this sort of miracle, not sort of, a miracle of your your kids and some of the hardship there that they, they went through and your family went through, but it really changed my perception of even covering fighters that I really wanted to meet their families after I met you and just knew you on TV and, and on ESPN.com. And then you became this real person with a real backstory that was way more intense than anything I'd been through. Um, I wonder if you just talk a bit about that, that what was going on in your life while you're covering boxing, because it's an extraordinary thing. And I don't know if many people know about it. Well, I definitely appreciate you uh, sharing those, those thoughts and sentiments in, um, in, in finding me interesting and wanting to meet me. I, I appreciate that. I remember covering that Rigondeaux fight with you. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy to think back now because, like, you know, 2013 is a great example. I'm, I'm on camera co-hosting a you know, weekly ESPN digital show, which in reality when you're in ESPN is like they, the higher-ups don't even know that show exists, right? It's not like it's a thing. But I guess it's everybody else. It's, you're on ESPN. You're on basically TV, and, and yet, you know, I couldn't even pay – I could barely pay my rent at that point. I remember specifically that winter, like, um, hitting this point where it's like, I can't even pay my heating bill. Like borrowing money from a church to pay your heating bill and having like actual being having access to the town's like food pantry. Like and you know and that's things that like you, you know your your pride is telling you like well not only am I this guy on camera but you know I'm a thirty year old you know whatever thirty something year old man who like worked hard his whole life through a lot of ups and downs. Like I can't accept handouts. You know like. But yet it's this crazy dichotomy of where, yeah, I'm getting to go to fights and it probably looks great, but I'm going to fights and my wife's telling me, like, do not spend a dime. Like, you know, if you, yeah. do not buy one beer because we, we can't afford it. And uh, and it certainly tests your your passion for the potential of the of a job you think you might be able to get one day by doing it. It certainly humbles you. It humbles me that during that time to get these camera opportunities and, and driving to, like, the local um, – uh, I guess what's the store, what's the what's the Salvation Army type place and trying mm-hmm. on suits and buying one for like four dollars that you're like some guy probably you know this was his funeral suit until he passed away a couple of years ago oh I think if yeah. I stuck, if I suck my my uh, gut and I can fit into this thing it's always only four dollars let me see if it looks good on the air you know some people always have a running joke with me I used to have this suit I bought for eight dollars that I would wear on the air that looked normal but if you looked at it close not only was there blood stains on it but I think it was actually a women's suit <laughs> in hindsight looking back well, it served me well at live fights for a while so wow. look it helps me appreciate a lot of uh, of the journey because um even aside from the personal things that I can touch on in a second that, that I've had to overcome to get here, um, there's just no career. There's no like proper career path for you know a niche sport like this, or 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 you know in a lot of things in life, there's not really a co- proper career path. And it's like you know I get a lot of advice from people. I'm sorry, questions from people saying like, I just saw you on TV. I love you, man. I want to have your exact same career. Um, what should I do? I'm 22. And uh, I never give, you know, career uh, advice in terms of, oh, do this next. Call up this guy next. It's always just like look inside yourself and, and ask yourself how bad do you want it, you know, because you're not going to get paid. And if you make it, it's going to be a miracle of timing, passion, and all this stuff. And, and that's so true. 
and um and it's certainly so worth it when you do but i've had so many moments where it was tested not just tested where your bank account is telling you i can't keep going on like this chasing something that might not even be there and yet i got a wife and kids and it, it, it's even more i remember specifically 2010 um, becoming a little bit of a boxing guy and yet having my boss at ESPN sit me down and go, all right, let's talk. You know, you've been with us for whatever, five, six years. You know, what do you want to do with your career? And me going, I want to write about boxing, you know, I want a couple of fights. I want to, you know, I mean, whatever, man. I just want, you know, and him going, like, okay, you're, you know, 33 years old and you've got a wife and kids and you're trying to save money eventually to buy a first house. And uh, how many people, here's the question he asked, how many people do you think get paid to cover boxing full time? At that point, that wasn't a great year for boxing. It was kind of in this in-between down period. And I'm like, well, there's Rayfield, there's Ioli. And he's like, just to cover boxing. And I'm like, well, Mannix does it half the way. You know, two and a half, I think. I think two and a half. He's like, exactly. He goes, right from this sport. He goes, if you told me you like the NBA or the NHL or or whatever, I could make some phone calls upstairs. I could help you on that path. I could put you in the right spot. Uh, You're in a dead sport. There's no future here. I advise you to get away from it. And I remember like, just like thinking in that moment, I remember I told him word for it, I go, you can't choose what you love, right? Like it chose me, this weird mm-hmm. thing. It chose me and, you know, I'll figure it out. And, and him giving me that like disappointing fatherly look, like, ugh. You know, and, and, and that's one of those interesting turning point moments. So was it three, four years later when I, I was like, you know what? My whole goal, my dream in life is to be on a live fight broadcast. I feel like I may not fit a mold, but I feel like I got the passion that I'm just so excited to be there. I just want to, like, bring it in front of the camera. So I called the meeting. I went over people's heads and called the meeting with the top TV producer at ESPN who, who handles fights and was like, you know, here's what I brought. Here's what I've done in the past online. Here's who I am. I feel like I can add a lot. And he looked at me in the eye and he goes, look, appreciate you being here, man. But um, you're not an ex-fighter. You're not an ex-trainer. And you don't cover news. I couldn't sell you to the audience for a second. You know, like, thanks for trying, but, uh, you know, sorry. And, you know, those are turning points where you can walk away. And yeah. you can just go, okay, you know, I, I tried. And that same guy, you know, six months later was the same guy who called me up and said, hey, uh, we gotta, so we got to fill a hole tonight. Would you like to come in and be the sideline reporter at this ESPN fight? Would you like to, then the next week, would you like to be the analyst in the studio the next week? Would you like to interview Roy Jones on camera the next week? We're, we're going to fly you out here. So it's, it's crazy. And um, it's made it all worth it because of personal things coming through, whether it was my early 20s, my life kind of falling apart due to, uh, you know, an excessive party lifestyle and being unable to sort of uh, find a path, find the passion, find love to continue and just sort of existing in life and just kind of being okay with that and figure, yeah, it's going to end eventually and whatever. And, you know, and finding sort of a spiritual regrowth and, and finding love in life for, for, for life, for myself. And that was certainly a major turning point when so many in my town and in my extended friend circles had to come to certain addictions or, or you know, I mean, look, you, you look at my graduating high school class, the amount of people that are not with us anymore is staggering and sad that and then to you know turn things around get a job at espn get married and within four months have my wife give birth to um you know premature twin sons who were under two pounds and uh tw- at 25 weeks not given a chance to survive in separate hospitals in separate states uh each needing six major surgeries in the first year and really producing over that 
that first year, multiple conversations in which it's almost like being in the in the boss's office when he's like, boxing, come on, where they sit you down and they go, all right, here's the deal. You know, medically, your son's not going to make it. You know, here's my advice. Take him home. Take a lot of pictures. You'll probably get a month before this specific organ fails. You know, and, and you, know, you say, what about this? What about this? No, I'm sorry. It's medically impossible. It's not going to happen. And I remember in those moments not trying to be a smart guy or tough guy or anything, just standing up and looking these you know, doctors in my eye, in the eye and going, no, not my son. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll find a way. And, you know, those are the moment of truth moments in life. And, and, and what's great about those moments is you don't have to think about the words you're about to say. They just come out of you. Like they're, you know, like from like deep in your, ingrained inside your pores and veins, they just come out of you. And that's who you are in that moment. And, you know, thank God we found a way and there were, insane multiple miracles over the next few years where certain body parts and organs grew back that was literally medically impossible and, you know, uh, survivals of crazy surgeries with bad odds that were largely impossible and being told, you know, your son's 99% is going to be in a wheelchair and never walk or speak um, because his brain, you know, there's insane brain bleeds all over and then, you know, that didn't happen. And my son is and ran a 5K last year and my, you know, like in just... It's hmm. it's wild, and it and it's not like I was um, not like because I dealt with the stress so well, I was rewarded with this great outcome, right? I remember being living that hospital life and seeing people in similar situations on the left and right of me lose their children, and I don't know why, in the grand scheme, these things happen this way, but I do know that um, one, you know, I have a responsibility with a great story like this to share it and try to inspire other people, but two, you know. That was a giant moment in my career when I was struggling, nobody at ESPN, and I just, you know, I was happy to be there. And that's great. Like, just getting to ESPN for a lot of people is like a, whether you're sweeping the floors or, or counting stats or whatever, like, it's, it's, a, it's a destination. You made it. But didn't even understand what it meant to, like, give my all of the job and what real work ethic was and what, you know, real um, – Perseverance. I mean, I guess in some ways it's all the qualities that I admire about fighters that I don't mm. believe that I have in my real life if I was tested in some sort of moment of truth that involves, like, you know, you're on a train and somebody bumps into your wife and tries to hit her. You know what I mean? Like, one of those moments, you're like, like oh, I don't think I could be as tough as, you know, Riddick Bowe in that moment, like when he, when he walked down Evander Holyfield in the first fight. Yet in my own ways, um, I learned, you know, the hard way that uh, – you can do anything in life, and you don't have to know how to get there. You don't have to know what the next step is going to be. But um, watching my kids like struggle and fight when they were premature babies in incubators to just get another breath to just survive when they were told so when we were told so many times you wouldn't get it tomorrow, it did something to me to uh, wake me up and realize like, you know how much how long have I had fear holding me back on everything? Forget you know job just everything and just been haunted by this and you know it's been a wild journey where even through big time success in my career for the first time I started to deal with things like anxiety and depression that you know sort of went undiagnosed my whole life that were certain pitfalls and stuff but uh life is this crazy journey of growth and I've I can't believe you know pinch myself that I'm here right now that I bought my first house at 40 and that you know, I'm making good money now and I'm getting paid to do this sport that I love and, and do this thing where I, I don't fit a role. You know, I'm not, I, we can't market you. You're not an ex-fighter. You're not a newsbreaker. Well, I'm me though, right? And I yeah. think that uh, 
I certainly wished I could have had that, as we all do, that wisdom when I was 18 rather than dropping out of college. And I certainly wished uh, when I look back at the schoolyard when I was nine that I didn't back down, that I, that I followed through with the right hand. I certainly wish a lot of things in life, but I've been able to use the, uh, the crazy life lessons and spin them forward. And uh, I, maybe that's why I just love the sport so much because I've been, I've been down. And I'm not that hyped fighter who came up the amateur system and had the promoters coming after him. Like, yeah, I worked at ESPN, but I was, you know, they didn't even know I was working there, so to speak, right? And uh, and I've, you know, somehow found a way to to linger. You know, maybe I'm maybe I'm Glenn Cough Johnson, right? Maybe I'm your 2004 <laughs> fighter of the year, where where we get I've got 10 losses, but but I'm still here. I'm still fighting. Well, and it, it's interesting all this, and and I really appreciate you sharing this stuff because I I didn't mean to probe i didn't clear with you before we talked to discuss about such personal stuff but i remember meeting you and i remember you pointing out your suit that i think you showed me the blood stain and i remember you having to hold an esbn logo against the microphone because they weren't actually connected or like it had broken <laughs> off or something like that and you talked about at the time how the church was helping your wife and your kids with food and what I took away from that moment and every time after that was for all of the struggles that you were having at that time and had been through with your kids, what really struck me about your character was that you demonstrated such an enormous amount of gratitude for the things that you had and you were very generous with people and being kind to them and supportive of other writers and, and other people involved in the sport. I never sensed that you were trying to box people out or lord over that you worked at ESPN and like you guys are in your mother's basement all these kind of really nasty things to people where as you say if two and a half people at the time that you get involved with boxing are full-time working at it with a living wage and everybody else covering the sport who cares about it just as much as we do is doing it is working just to get a credential to be there and to cover it like it, it, it's amazing how often we hear multimillionaires talk about I would do it for nothing, and there's nothing out there of people demonstrating that that's true. Like it's all about money, basically out there is what we're hearing. We're hearing money above performances most of the time now in the world of sports and film. You know, many different cultural arenas. Every kid who goes into a museum saying, "How much did that cost?" As if it's the most important thing in terms of the value of, of great things. But uh, it really did strike me that you were always very supportive of other people. And I, I, I was, my takeaway from that at the time and since is that's the kind of attitude that helps other people when they get into their jams to think, I don't think that guy would be nice to me unless maybe he saw that I kind of belong here. And even though maybe it's not working out so well, there's these reasons for me to stay and to try to hang in there and maybe an opportunity will happen. So I just... I, I just want to point out that I, I definitely noticed that about you and, and, and still doing it and stuff like as much as I don't really like social media, you seem to use it in a very positive way. That, and I'm always struck by a lot of people who have hardships use it as a chip on their shoulder to, to be the demon that drives them to do stuff, but they're not really driven to help other people. Like there's very little sense of gratitude about what they do have. They're grievance-driven and oriented and it's still, to me, kind of shocking 
that like the hardships that you went through with your kids um, drove you to kind of be the best version of yourself and, and to stay away from addiction. And, and I mean, it's fascinating to me. I wanted to ask you, when you mentioned so many of the people from your graduating class at high school are no longer living, I mean, I had three suicides in my graduating class at high school, which still resonates with me that these people are gone at 17, 18 years old. And it's like, wow, what would have happened if they had a couple more years of perspective? I don't know if it would have been any different. I don't know how much of that is hereditary um, or, or chemicals, you know, neurochemicals, but what is it that you make of where you came from that so many people struggled the way you're, you're saying? I mean, I, I'm currently living in Connecticut, but I don't know much about it where the various <laughs> neighborhoods, except that Westport is not Bridgeport. I established that for myself. Uh, you know, I grew, I grew up in such a uh, blue collar area in, in the in the valley, as they called it, which is uh, old factory town uh, next to a larger urban city. Typical, not typical of of, uh, of Connecticut, which is you know the, the Gold Coast or rural farmland or the three or four big cities that you've heard of, which certainly have hardship stories and crime. But it's a it's a past it's a cut through state where people make a lot of money, and and I was in a town that was more like. Uh, you know, Tom Cruise's high school in all the right moves or, you know, could, could have been cast out of like, you know, West Virginia or something without sort of the, you know, stereotypical Appalachia sort of uh, country hick style. But, um, you know, I think it's just um, it, it was a lot of pride in the town. Sports was a such a giant motivational pride thing, but it was a town where it's set up even in the in the apartment buildings or the, the nicer houses on the hill where. It was just sort of set up that, you know, the peak of your life was 17. The Al Bundy four touchdowns in one game, you know, like football was king. And, and, that, and that was great, you know, and, and, and you and your buddies, you know, and everybody can relate to this to a degree. But, you know, the times you and your buddies went in the woods and drank beers when you were 18, that was where that was great. It was great. But it was just sort of everybody's life arc kind of started to curl downhill after that. And you got into some job just to be able to, you know, make ends meet and eventually buy some crappy house. And then you found your local favorite bar that's dimly lit. And I never always wondered why. Why are these bars so dimly lit? Well, then, you you know, you have some hardship in your life and you realize why. But, um, you know, uh, sadly, you know, it's not just the suicides or the drug addictions or the ridiculously violent crimes. It's just like, um, you know, it's, it's not even really a, a, a crazy quote-unquote ghetto, but it's just an area where there was despair and was, uh, uh, you know, and I, and I lived it. And I certainly had great potential as a kid and, you know, was that ridiculous sports factoid kid who memorized everything he read. And, you know, from when I was, you know, seven through even when I was working part-time in high school at, Mac at McDonald's and stop and shop, people were like, oh, one day you're going to be on, you're going to be a sports center anchor, man. And I'm just like, yeah, right, yeah, right. Like, I just didn't have a, a, a like a lot of people, and there's never drive to to didn't know how to unlock. And uh, you know, there's this great um, lyric that I thought about. Oh, I used to always think about during my hard years. The band, uh, the band Wilco, great uh, indie rock band. Mm -hmm. um, there's a song called "Understood," where there's this lyric that says, "There's a fortune inside your head, but all you touch turns to lead." And you know, during my craziest, hardest years, you know, in early 20s, just not being able to figure out how to how to do life. I remember thinking, like, man, like I, I'm condemned to be an underachiever. Like I've, like it was in me. It was in me to break out of this and, and figure something out. But you know what? I I made the wrong decisions. It's my bad. It's my fault. So 
so there's no going back. And I think I was trapped in that mindset that we all get trapped in. Some of us to really bad degrees, some of us, you know, can overcome it. But that mindset that like it didn't go perfect, so it can't go at all. And, you know, I didn't know that there were alternative career paths. You know, I thought it was like if you're going to become a sports center anchor, well, then you got to be the uh, you got to know it when you're seven years old and you got to get a college scholarship to do that. And you got to work at the college TV station and you got to get an internship with this team and you got to follow this path and this line. And, um, you know, one of the greatest uh, epiphanies was sort of finding out through my own sort of uh, untraditional story of, of quote unquote, making it that, you know, it's never too late. It's it's it, and it doesn't have to be like anyone else because, you know, no one's journey is the same and you don't have to know what the next step is. And, you know, I wish I could have known all this stuff back when I'd sit around in my broken couch with, with a six pack of beer at night with this fortune inside my head thinking, I have no idea how to unlock this. I have no idea how to share this. I have no idea how to market this. I have no idea how to use this. I mean, look, there are certain pinch me moments. Like last Friday night, I do the show Morning Combat on Showtime. They replayed some Floyd Mayweather fights. They paid me money to sit in my basement with my buddy Luke Thomas, drink beers, him from his house, me from my house, and rewatch the fights, crack inappropriate jokes, and just be passionate dudes that you'd hang out with. And they paid me to do that. Now, Trin, I was a great hang in 2002. That's exactly what I was doing. I was sitting on a couch with a fortune in my head and some personal problems <laughs> and just not an understanding that something as ridiculous as that could be marketable. Now, look, that wasn't my career plan, uh, you know, to be and that's certainly not a full-time job. But you get my point of, like, you know, I used to be so envious of, like, that dude down the street who all he did on Saturday nights was or, or, or every weekend was play guitar. And then by the time he got to be 20, you know, he's playing in bars and he's getting chicks and i was envious of this dude whose dad owned a store and taught him how to be a uh entrepreneur and now he has his own business and i was in you know envious of this other kid who knew from age 13 he wanted to be a cpa and now he's this accountant he went to this great college and i'm like you know i didn't have any natural skills i didn't uh you know i did but it's really not true it's really like your entire life is that impressed apprenticeship to get to where you're supposed to be you just have to be able to get to a point where you believe you can unlock it. And, you know, so many people I grew up with never got to that point. And I was them at certain points in my life. I was like, you know, too bad, took the wrong turn. And, you know, certainly a, there's a deeper conversation there at play about mental health that I didn't even really begin to understand or unlock even until like two years ago. And I, and I looking at the poster on my wall right now, autographed from Moro Ronaldo, an announcer on Showtime and, and WWE and Bellator MMA that I respect a lot, who's a, uh, bipolar rock and roller movie i think really put out a uh you know great message and opened people's eyes to the idea of mental health but it was actually through that project me interviewing and spending a day with him in uh in new york that i was sort of like oh my god like i've quote unquote made it already yet i don't even think i realized some of the ways my wife my life went and and why things were the way they are and why things are the way they are now and maybe i'm not putting my own mental health first. So it's a journey, but I just wish I knew that um, you don't have to have the answers, man. You know what I mean? You don't have to be the, the best. You don't have to do anything but keep getting up and putting one foot in front of the other. And uh, not to, you know, throw you, throw here, but uh, if you do walk in the direction of your dreams and you just keep walking, like, you, I'm not going to flat earth you either. You don't just fall off the side of the earth. You eventually get there. You know, it does happen, but... That walk is going to be, you know, dark and wet and lonely and cold and uh, and um, 
I'm really blessed that that I was able to unlock this fortune in my head, so to speak, to reference that song lyric one more time. And I've realized that like we all have that fortune in our own way inside of us. But are we all bold enough to take a chance? You know, and that could just be your neighbor who makes a lot of money and is a is an insurance salesman, but he hates his job and he hates his life and his family, and all he wants to do is uh, open a cafe by the ocean. Well, even that guy, there's still time for him to figure out his life's passion. You know, and you can get there. And it's um, you know, I didn't get here because I'm so strong. I got here because I failed so many times and was able to. And to learn those lessons and I, you know, without doing something that would set my life back forever or taking my own life or all that. But uh, it's crazy, man. Life is really crazy. And uh, just one thing to close on, on mental health. Um, I hit a weird patch like three years ago. Got a full-time job at CBS, left ESPN. Everything's great. Dream job, supposedly. Everything's good. You know, I was like working from home for the first time sitting in my basement all winter, every single day, pajamas, not showering, doing the same job every day, not talking to people because you, you don't think about when you're in an office for 12 years, you're seeing hundreds of people a day. And I was just full on depressed. And I'm like, this is supposed to be it. I made it. But this kind of sucks. Like, what am I doing? This is like, I need a mountain to climb. You know, I need something here. And I started to realize that, like, my whole career had been um, – this mindset of not wanting to be exposed, right? Mm. And we all have irrational fear, right? Like if they only knew I really wasn't this guy who can sit in front of a camera and talk, if they only knew that I'm not an ex-writer or a newsbreaker, right? You know, I just don't want to be exposed. I want to be good enough so I can belong. And that's certainly a, a defeatist mindset. And I, like a lot of people, was just like, man, if I could just do a fake Jim Lampley impression on the, in front of the camera and they, and, they don't, and they call me back again, then I made it, Right. And I never realized that, like, you know, I wasn't being truthful to myself. And it was, it was through some, you know, explorations mentally in terms of uh, coming to terms with my own mental health that I realized that, like, um, when you're, once you become honest and understand who you are and realize that not only who you are is enough, but realize that um, it's actually more than enough. Like people act like there's a, there's a value in there to just being yourself and being free. I had this change that happened in 2018 on camera where I just stopped caring. I stopped stressing when I get off camera and be like, Oh man, I screwed up that one thing. Oh man. And watch it 17 times. And then, you know, set myself back, just stopped caring. And I just started to be me. I started to crack weird jokes on camera and do those weird point things that you mentioned. I just started to totally just be like, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not an ex-fighter or a coach or, or a newsbreaker, but I'm me. And, dude, the phone has not stopped ringing. And, and I don't say that to brag. I just say that there's something special there that happened. There's a transaction that took place that um, who I am is enough, right? And, and who I am is there's something unique in there that some people like and are drawn to. And, and that's cool. And that's it. And I don't have to be sitting around in fear waiting for the phone to stop ringing or waiting to be exposed as a fraud. I can just kind of unlock and, and, and go do it. And that's been a giant life changer where even at a certain point in my life where I quote unquote looked like I made it, finally had the money to maybe prove that I made it, I still didn't know what I was doing mentally day to day. And I'm really happy to have gone through that. Yeah, and I, I'm sure in a big way it inspires everybody in the ways that they're struggling to sort of 
be visible with who they are. I mean, I think there's a there's a Jewish proverb that the measure of a man is, is his willingness to be seen clearly and to see others clearly. And I think that sounds similar to what you're describing, is that when we see somebody who has the courage to be visible for who they are, it, it, it does allow us a bit of permission and sort of offer a passport for us to do the same. And I think everybody's sort of desperate for that. We want to be visible because it's to be appreciated for things that aren't you, what, what's the value in that? So true. So true. No no offense to Jim Lampley. I'd love to do a bootleg, second-rate Jim Lampley, but uh, that's not me. Well, we can both break down crying about the fact that we're going to end this now and offer that to Jim Lampley if you want. With full respect to Jim Lampley. I love Jim Lampley, but I'm just an insider boxing little wink-wink. Absolutely. Cool. Brian, I really appreciate this. This was really fun. Um, I hope everything keeps going well. It's great to, to hear all these successes that are happening for you. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate that. Thanks for having interest. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Take care, man. Okay. Later. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, Myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.